0: Chapter Thirteen of The Black Motor Car. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jairus Amar. The Black Motor Car by Harris Burland, Chapter Thirteen. News from Valparaiso. The next morning, the whole of Essex rang with the news of the burglary at Heatherstone Hall and the murder of young Lord Overcliffe, heir to the title and the great Heatherstone Estates. By noon the story had reached the London Evening Papers, and the Halfpenny Press worked up three columns out of the scanty material at their disposal. Fictitious anecdotes of the family from the time of Henry the Eighth supplied much of the matter. The news of the murder was brief, and was ingeniously sandwiched between the masses of irrelevant information. But that day saw a score of keen reporters on the spot, and half a dozen detectives equally keen, but less obtrusive in their methods. And the following morning, all England knew of the Heatherstone murder. The news came to the Red House through the postman. Lip brought it with the letters to William Jordison, as the latter was at breakfast. He conveyed the news in two words. Lord Overcliffe, he whispered quietly in his master's ear. Jordison did not look up from his substantial breakfast of eggs and bacon, but taking up the letters which had been placed by his side, Glanced carelessly at the envelopes. Lip still stood behind his chair, as though expecting some remark. Jordison went on with his breakfast after selecting one letter from the others, and placing it by the side of his plate. Lord Overcliff Lip repeated hoarsely. Jordison turned round sharply and looked at him. The man's face was white and unwholesome in appearance. There was a sullen look of fear in his eyes. "'It doesn't add a lip,' Jordison said. "'The fact remains the same. It is an ugly business.' "'We'll both swing for it,' continued the servant in a half-frightened tone. "'Possibly,' said Jordison but all men's lives are equal. Lord Overcliffe is of no more importance in the eyes of the law than one of the footmen. The man bent down till his ugly mouth was within an inch of Jordison's ear. You're a bloomin' fool, he said familiarly. The death of a servant would be forgotten in a month, but him, that young lord, lord bless you, they'll move heaven and earth and hell to find out who killed him. And save the brass to keep things a-rollin', and we haven't a dog's chance. I will take such chance as there is, Lip, Dorison replied quietly, and stay here. You can go if you like, but your departure will be known, and you will be followed and arrested on suspicion. Your past career will probably come to light, and then... And then what? Why, the fat will be in the fire, and you will frizzle in it. The man swore a horrible oath, and gripped the back of Jordison's chair with his fingers. The latter did not look round at him, but his right hand stole to his pocket, as though searching for his handkerchief. Take my word for it, Lip," he said quietly. "You are safe enough here." What of Jeremy and Susanson said the man. "There'll be a thousand pounds reward for this job, maybe five thousand pound, maybe ten thousand pound. Old Etherstone won't spare expense. Do you think human nature'll stand it?" Jordison made no reply but the thought ran through his mind that he himself was equally dangerous to live. He kept his hand in his pocket. Do you think I'm going to put my neck in their dirty hands, or yours either? Continued the ruffian, echoing Jordison's own thoughts. I ain't such a babe and suckling. Jordison turned sharply round and caught the look in his servant's eyes. A murderess, evil look. He also saw a pair of thick, muscular hands unpleasantly near the back of his neck. The man drew back as he turned and showed his yellow teeth. That'll do, Lip, Dorison said. I'll see that Jeremy and Susanson keep their mouths shut. As for me, I'm in the same boat as yourself. Now will you kindly go, as I want to read my letters and finish my breakfast, and mark your lip, no tricks. You'll find me an unpleasant person to deal with if you cut up rough, but if you stick to me, I'll stick to you. Do you understand? Yes, governor, the man replied, but give me a solemn oath. Jordison rose to his feet and held out his hand. Here's my hand on that lip, and my word of honor. The man took the proffered hand and peered into Jordison's face. Then he grinned, and the master knew what was passing through the servant's mind, and his face flushed. Word of honor. The phrase had come to his lips from the past, when it had had a real meaning he felt that it required some readjustment to soothe the present circumstances. There's honor among thieves, he said bitterly. You can trust me, Lip. Swoke me, Bob. I believes you, governor. I'll stick to you. Neither Jeremy nor Susanson must leave the house until I've decided how to keep their mouths shut. I can rely on you to see to that, Right, Governor," the man answered, as he slouched out of the room. When the door closed, Jordison hastily swallowed a few more mouthfuls of breakfast, but his eyes never left the letter which lay on the right of his plate, and every now and then he fingered it expectantly. The envelope was thick to the touch, and bore a monogram of B and W, Intertwined so gracefully as to be barely intelligible. When he had finished his breakfast, he tore open the envelope, and, pulling out several sheets of paper, studied them carefully. The letter from Messieurs Briggs and Warlock ran as follows: "Dear Sir, in accordance with your instructions." We sent out our special agent to Valparaiso to investigate the supposed death of your son. We enclose you his report, from which we regret to learn that Mr Richard Bahag is undoubtedly dead, and was in all probability murdered by his friend, Mr Arthur Astarius. Perhaps you will wish to let the matter end at this point. If you desire to trace the murderer of your son. Our services are at your disposal. We have so far not gone beyond your instructions. We are, dear sir, yours respectfully, Briggs and Warlock. Enclosed was the following report, written on foreign paper in a neat but commonplace hand. Dear Mr. Warlock, I sailed for Buenos Aires on August ninth in the caballo, and, crossing overland to Valparaíso, put up at the Viajero Hotel. Within a few hours of my arrival, I called on the chief of police and asked for his cooperation in the matter which had been placed in my hands. He treated me with coolness, but when I carelessly pulled out my wallet on pretense of searching for a letter and thereby disclosed a considerable bundle of English banknotes. His manner underwent a marked change, and at the end of half an hour he became the best of friends. This was a considerable but a necessary expense, and I did it as cheaply as possible. Signor Donoso is a very proud man. He promised to search up the records of his office, I gathered this would take time, as life is held cheap in these South American states, and the records of sudden death are somewhat voluminous. A week afterward, I received a note from him asking me to call at his private house, and there, with the help of some excellent wine and cigars, he told me all that he knew about Richard Bahag. It appears that when Bahag left his ship at Valparaiso, he obtained work as a clerk in the trading-house of Hicks, Sterius, & Company, who were one of the leading English firms in the city. He seems to have been a young man of considerable intelligence, and more than average education, for by the end of the year I find that he had been promoted to the responsible position of head cashier. It also seems that he had formed a somewhat undesirable friendship with a young Arthur Stereus. The latter was the eldest son of the principal partner in the firm, but he had little or no aptitude for business, and his name was mixed up with more than one disreputable scandal in Valparaiso. From all that I could gather, he appears to have been a young man of athletic build and pursuits but of a peculiarly wild and vicious character. I strongly suspect that this somewhat undesirable friendship sprang from interested sources on both sides. The hag saw a possible rise in his position from his intimacy with the son of a member of the firm, and Starius, as I should guess from what subsequently transpired, had even more sordid reasons for our friendship with the cashier of his father's office. I may do either or both of them an injustice, but except on one point. Their tastes appear to have been very dissimilar, and it is at any rate curious that a steady, hard-working young fellow like Bahag should have chummed up with a man whose character was not even up to the somewhat lax standard of South American cities. They had, however, one pursuit in common, and it may possibly have been this which linked them together. They were both fond of the sea. Arthur Sterius owned two yachts, one the Pajarito, a small five-tonner, and the other the Pajaro, a fifty-tonner. Behag had been a sailor by profession and was probably glad to be a passenger on the bigger boat, or else potter about in the smaller one for his own amusement. At any rate, he seems to have spent much of his spare time on the water. Then one Sunday morning, the and Stereus went out in the Pajarito, and since that day, no one has ever set eyes on them again. It was a fine, warm day with a slight southerly breeze. Both were experienced sailors, and it is extremely unlikely that they could have come to grief in fair weather. But for all that, the pajarito was never picked up. A week afterward, her dinghy came ashore twenty miles north of Valparaíso, bottom upward. The general opinion at that time was that for some reason or other the yacht had foundered, and that the two men had pulled off in the dinghy and met with an accident in the open sea. But three months afterward, it was rumored that the great firm of Hicks, Steris and Company were in difficulties. A month later they failed, and in the subsequent inquiries into the matter, it came out that they had been robbed of cash and negotiable securities to the enormous amount of two hundred thousand pounds, and that the fraud had been discovered twenty-four hours after the disappearance of the head cashier. Jordison rose to his feet with a darkened face, half crumpling the letter in his hand. He scarcely dared to read another line. His mind flew back to the miserable termination of his own honesty. Was it possible that history had repeated itself? That the son was tainted with the father's blood? That the criminal instinct had become hereditary? If it were so, he thanked God that his son was dead, and that the race had been stamped out. He sat down again in the chair, and buried his face in his hands and several moments elapsed before he had the courage to resume the perusal of the letter. It continued as follows. The firm had kept the secret till they were forced to disclose it, knowing well that any rumor of their loss would involve them in ruin. But directly the truth was known. It was clear to everyone that the robbery had been committed by Behag and Sterius and that the two men had endeavored to make off with all the negotiable securities on the Pajarito. At first, it seemed probable that the two men had rowed ashore in the dinghy and made good their escape. But a month after the failure of Hicks, Sterius, and Company, the sea gave up its dead. The body of a man was washed ashore forty miles north of Valparaiso, and though scarcely a shred of flesh was left on his bones, and the clothes were so worn as to scarcely afford the means of identification. Yet there was no doubt that it was the body of Richard Behag, for a gold ring bearing his monogram was still hanging on one of his fingers. The skull was broken in, and the doctor who examined the body gave it as his opinion that this was the result of foul play. The mark was long and clearly defined, as though it had been inflicted by some heavy instrument, and it was clearly not caused by rocks or an accidental collision of the body with anything in the sea. This discovery put an entirely new complexion on affairs, and the police came to the reasonable conclusion that Sterius had murdered Behag and made good his escape with the lost securities. This theory was subsequently confirmed by a most unexpected occurrence. One morning, about six months after the day Serius and Bahag had left Valparaiso, Mr. Serius, Sr., received a bulky package from England. It was registered and addressed in a handwriting that he did not recognize. On opening it, he found that it contained the whole of the missing securities and that only the sum of 2,000 pounds was missing. The surprise was as welcome as it was inexplicable. But Hicks, Stereus and Company have regained nearly all the prestige they had lost, and they are today one of the most respected firms in Valparaiso. I may say that the package was posted in the southwest district of London. For obvious reasons, the firm made no endeavors to trace the whereabouts of Arthur Sterius, and the police here have their hands too full of murder cases to take any trouble in the case of a young man who had no friends to stimulate their efforts with hard cash. The matter has been entirely dropped. Richard Behag is dead, and Arthur Sterius has disappeared, and there the whole story seems to end. A careful perusal of the evidence that I send you has led me to the following simple conclusion. Bahag and Sterius arranged to rob the bank and escape on the Baharito. They subsequently quarreled, as thieves will do, over the division of the spoil. Or perhaps Sterius, who seems to have been a thorough scoundrel, thought it would be best to put his accomplice out of the way. At any rate, Arthur Sterius killed Bahag, threw him overboard, and tried to sail the yacht himself. He probably found this too much for him, got into difficulties, scuttled the boat, and made off for shore in the dinghy, which he subsequently left to the mercy of the waves and winds. Eventually, he managed to make his way to Europe. Up to this point the theory seems to present no difficulties, but the return of the securities is absolutely inexplicable, and I have, as yet, been unable to conceive why a man who had risked so much to gain this end, and who had even killed his accomplice in the course of his crime, should give back the very thing for which he had committed both robbery and murder. I may say in conclusion that I have made strenuous efforts to secure a photograph of Arthur Stereas, and have even committed a mild burglary with this object in view. The young man has apparently only been photographed once during the past seven years, and I have been unable to lay my hands on a single copy. As, however, my instructions do not extend beyond the confirmation of Mr. Behag's death, I dare say your client will be satisfied with what I have accomplished. Unless I receive a cable from you within two months from date, I shall return home. In the meantime, I will endeavor to obtain such information about Mr. Stereus as may lead to his ultimate capture. The case interests me, and if anyone else is sufficiently interested in the detection of the murderer, and would pay my expenses and a trifle for myself. I will guarantee to track the fellow down. At present, my only clue is the fact that the securities were posted from London, and that the fugitive is a man of great height and breadth of shoulder, with fair hair and grey eyes. As you may imagine, this description will fit a large number of men. I am, dear sir, YOUR OBEDIENT SERVANT, EDWARD Lampett. Jordison laid the letter down and stared into the fire. It warmed his face with a red glow, yet the tinge of color did not soften the hard, cold misery in his eyes. His son was dead, little Dickie, whom he only remembered as an innocent child, was dead a thief murdered by his accomplice it is well he murmured to himself it is well that he is dead yet that day he wired to briggs and warlock and before evening the message had been flashed across the broad atlantic to edward lampet the cable was short and expressed all that was uppermost in the man's mind STERIUS MUST BE FOUND. SPARE NO EXPENSE. And all that night Dorison dreamed of a tall, broad shouldered young fellow with fair hair and gray eyes, a bronzed young fellow versed in sea craft, and in one of the dreams the stalwart frame hung up limp from a rope, with strapped arms and a broken neck. END OF CHAPTER THIRTEEN